Well, it is always a great honor of mine to open God's Word, and particularly here at this uh, church that uh, me and my family have been part of for these last six months. It has been a, a, a real blessing for us, and, um, and it's, and it's, again, an honor to open God's Word and to continue our worship service uh, by stating His Word. Uh, I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew 18. That's where we'll be in today. Matthew 18, we'll be looking at verses 21 through 35. And the topic we're looking at today is the topic of forgiveness. It is a, a topic that we all struggle with at some point or another. Uh, and it is a topic that is a major theme of the Bible. You read through the Bible, you come here to church and listen to sermons. Forgiveness is a constant theme. And we know from our own experience that it is a true necessity for any healthy relationship. So I want you to do a, a quick survey in your mind uh, right now. I want you to think of all the relationships you have with individuals, all, all the meaningful relationships you have. Now, if you start to compile that list, you know, a, a few come up to mind. You start to think, well, I have my husband or, or my wife. I have my children. I have my coworkers. I have my family here at CBC. And on and on and on, we, we, you start to get that list that all these relationships you have and with that list in mind, I want you to, I want, I want to ask one more question. I want you to think of that list and categorize it as best you can by the order of the one who sins against you the most. In that list, and the pe people you know most uh, deeply, the most meaningful relationships, who sins against you the most? Who comes first? Now, it's most likely if you're like my wife, you'll probably think of, her, of your husband. Uh, there's no doubt that <laughs> I'm the one who sits against her the most, even, I think, more so than our kids. But whoever we know the most, that's, that's the one who's going to sin against us the most. And, and, you know, spouses come to mind. I mean, how, how often do we have that conversation with our spouse, right, where it's the third time we're having that same conversation because you did the same thing. And, and, uh, and we're seeking forgiveness, and, you, and you're coming up to that point where like, do I, can I forgive them again? Do I need to forgive them again? Even though they have committed the same sin against me. Or maybe children come to mind. Right? Children, I mean, they, they, man, they just go for it sometimes, right? <laughs> my, my wife calls them vipers and diapers. Um, and so, you know, they sin, they sin against us, and kids are a little bit easier, but as they get older, you know, Forgiveness becomes an issue. Uh, how about people in our church family? Do you, do you think Christians have a hard time with forgiveness? Do we have a hard time with forgiveness within the church? And my point is that every single relationship is going to have problems. Every single relationship, you're going to run into sin. Someone's going to be offended, whether it's yourself or the other person. And when you're offended, you come to this decision. You have to make a decision as to whether or not you're going to forgive the other person. And you ask yourself, can I even forgive them again? Do I have it within me? Or am I justified in withholding this forgiveness? So what's our natural inclination? What do we want to do? We just let go and say, okay, what are we going to do? And if you're like me, you want them to make retribution. You know, if someone sins against, me, sins against me, I want them to fix what was broken. Amend that error. Do something to fix it. Or maybe you just want to stay angry. You don't want to talk to them. The, the, sin against, the sin that was done against you is so great that you just don't want to talk to them. You want to stew in your anger. 
And so I thought about this this past week. Why, why am I like that? What are we like that? Why do we want to not forgive? Why are we so unwilling to forgive? And I thought of a couple of things. It could be our pride. Right? For me, that's a big thing. I mean, it's my pride. He hurt me or she hurt me, and that's it. You did the worst thing possible. Maybe it's a pain of sin. It just hurts so great that we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. Well, I think we, ha- we do have a difficult time sin- uh, forgiving because of sin. I think it does go down to that, but we can even go to a deeper level. Because unbelievers have a difficult time forgiving because of sin. But we're not unbelievers. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you trust in him, you have seen a great forgiveness. You have seen a forgiveness that exceeds any forgiveness seen here between humans, between the church, between your family. You have been forgiven a great amount. And so why don't we want to forgive as Christians? I think it's because we lose sight of the gospel. We take our eyes off the cross and we start to focus on ourselves. And we forget, what did Christ do for me? What was that great forgiveness that we received in the gospel? Now saying this, I don't want to diminish the pain of sin. I I know that some of you have been hurt deeply. Some of you have been so, sinned so greatly that the pain is so deep that that pain has been neglected for years and years and it's, it's just gone untreated and now forgiveness seems like an impossibility. I don't want to discount that pain. And I know you see it. I know you see in the, in the, in the, in the Bible that you're called to forgive. I know that you hear in sermons to forgive and to actually bring yourself to do it is another thing. John Piper put it this way. He says, forgiveness of a wrong which hurts so deeply would be as great a miracle as flying. It's an impossibility at times. But then he read this poem by John Bunyan. I want to read to you. John Bunyan, he writes, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. My my dear brother, my dear sister, if if you're struggling with forgiveness, the forgiveness only, only comes on the wings of the gospel. It is by recognizing that your your vast sins against the Father, how how we have rebelled against him, how we have uh, offended this holy God to such an extent that any other sin done against us, any other sin that we, we do against others, does not match the sin that we have done against God. And, and, and we look at God and see that great offense, and we look at the cross. We look at the one who bore our sin, who, though lived a perfect life, he died for us and forgiven us, and in that we are given wings to fly. The impossible has already been done. And now through the power of the Spirit, by seeing the example of God's love on the cross, you can forgive. You can be made free of this imprisonment of resentment and bask in the sunlight of peace and forgiveness, all because of the gospel, all because of what God did in Christ. We have been made free from our sin. Debt has been paid in full. We are no longer under any condemnation in Christ. We have been forgiven much, and therefore, we can forgive much. 
And this is what we're reading in our text today. This is what Jesus is teaching Peter in our passage in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. Uh, read with me. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I did not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment be made. So the slave, the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion, and released him, and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves, who owned him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave and in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Well, so what we see in our passage is that believers must genuinely and inexhaustibly forgive others because of God's incredible forgiveness shown to them. Believers must genuinely and inexhaustibly forgive others because of God's incredible forgiveness shown to them. And we dilute that, or we make it bite-sized, and we say, we can forgive much because we have been forgiven of much. And that's essentially what we're looking at today. We're, in our passage, we're looking at what's, what, uh, the extent of forgiveness and the reason of forgiveness. The extent of forgiveness we see in, in the first two verses, verses 21 and 22. The extent of forgiveness, namely that we can forgive much. And then Jesus follows that up with the parable, verses 23 to 35, of the reason for forgiveness. We can forgive much because we have been forgiven of much. So let's first look at the first two passages, uh, verses. Let's first look at the extent of forgiveness. We can forgive much. And we go to verse 21 of chapter 18 where we have Peter, approach, he's approaching Jesus with a question, and Peter says, how often should I forgive? Now, you've got to love Peter. I mean, say what you will about Peter. I mean, Peter has said a lot of dumb things in the past, and uh, we learn a lot of important lessons from him. But, hey, at least he has questions. Right? And as a, I, I, I'm an instructor, uh, and as an instructor, when I give a lesson, I ask if there's questions, and no one says anything, I'm like, okay, are you guys even listening? But Peter here, he's like, okay, I have a question. Uh, I, I want to ask this question because 
Uh, it's on my mind, and I'm so glad he did because I think we would have that same question in our mind if we look at the context, if we look at what Jesus just said. Now, where does that question come from? Well, look up at the previous verses. Verses 15. 15 through 17, or through 18, is Jesus speaking about what we call church discipline. This is about confronting uh, a brother or sister in the church uh, when we see sin, and we confront them uh, with the goal of getting them back to fellowship, of their repentance from that sin. If they don't repent, just with us coming, then Jesus tells us to bring witnesses before him, and eventually we tell the church. Now, it is a difficult process, right? Anytime you know, we're confronting sin, it is going to be a difficult process, but the goal is that our brother or sister is one, that we have our brother or sister who was in sin come back into fellowship, not only with us, but with the Lord. They're restored to the church, and it, and it comes from a place of love and concern. You see, in our church family, we care about each other. We care about how we're doing spiritually. We care about whether we're, whether we're repentant of our sin. So we lovingly confront a brother or sister if we see that sin. So Peter hears this. He says, okay, I get that. So we see someone's sin, we confront them, we win them over, everything's restored, and we go on. He says, great. Then he gets to thinking, which is often what gets us in trouble, and, he's, and especially Peter, and he says, but what if what if he sins against me? So it's not about even rest restoration. It's like, this guy sinned against me. So how often should I forgive him? And again, I, I think that's a, a great question because I would, be, I would be thinking the exact same thing. Should I keep forgiving someone who keeps sinning against me? Isn't there like a maximum? Isn't there a maximum number that I should say, okay, that's it. And Peter offers, offers a number. He says, well, what about seven? up to seven times. Now, to be honest with you, that is not a number I would have picked. Seven times? You know, try being sinned against by the same thing uh, over the seven times in one day. I think by time two, you'll be really stretching out, and then time three, you're like, all right, that's it. Maybe it's a whole baseball mentality, two strikes and you're out kind of thing, or three strikes and you're out. Uh, and even then, if, if, if we were honest with ourselves and we forgave sin, the one time, the first time we say, okay, I forgive you, we think we're gracious, right? Like, man, I just forgave your sin. I am a pretty awesome guy. Well, that's where if we're honest with ourselves, and, you know, there's something going on. In Peter's time, this is very similar. If you go to the Talmud, which is like the, the um, interpretation of the law for the, for the Jews, they'll say that forgiveness for three times is okay. You forgive three times, but the fourth time, you do not forgive. That's what their, their, their literature said. And Peter goes above that. He says, well, I'm going to be super gracious. Not just three times, but what if I do it seven times? And I can just imagine the other disciples like, oh, look at this guy, Mr. Compassionate over here. <laughs> so he, he was already being gracious according to the standard of the time. But look at what Jesus says. Look at his answer. In verse 22, Jesus says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. He's saying, no, Peter, not, not just seven times. And in the Greek, the no is emphatic. He's like, Peter, you, you have this all wrong. It's not about the seven times. He says, but 70 times seven. Now, is Jesus saying, okay, we keep a record until 490 times? Uh, obviously, 
obviously not. We're not. <laughs> I mean, if you could keep track of 490 times someone sinned against you, either you would have a book filled up really quick or you would lose count. Um, I, I would ask Daniela, how many times have I sinned? And if she told me 40, 483 for the eight years we've been married, I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty good. I think you lost count there. So Jesus is not saying, okay, do it 490, 490 times. He's speaking hyperbolically. He's saying that there can't be a limit to our forgiveness. If someone sins against you eight times in one day, you are still to forgive them. And you are to be that refuge of grace for them where they could go and they, they know they could find forgiveness. That is the mark of a believer. Now some might say, that, well, that doesn't sound fair. So if someone keeps sinning against me, someone keeps taking advantage of me, and you're telling me that I'm supposed to keep forgiving them. And yeah, that's what Jesus is saying. That's right. But don't get confused with forgiveness and justice. And don't get confused between forgiveness and wisdom. We can still forgive and be wise on how we go about it. A, a retired pastor told me a story one time about a, uh, uh, an usher that, that took money from the offering. And he suspected that. And he put up cameras and he saw it happening. So he caught the guy you know, red-handed. He caught the guy money in hand. He confronts him about it. And the usher just breaks down, asks for forgiveness. The elders forgive him. He was restored relationally. That sin was, was not held against him. It was not brought up for, for condemnation. It, it was over. He was forgiven. He was restored. But does that mean he's going to handle the money again? No, probably not. No, that, that's, that would not be wise. I mean, we, we forgive, and we, for, we forgive to forget in terms of, a, of condemnation, but we, we, there's still wisdom there. Proverbs 22.3 says this, The prudent sees evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. So when we forgive, we forgive to never bring it up again for the purposes of condemnation. We refuse to hold that sin against a person. That's true forgiveness. And we, in fact, we're making a promise to that person. We're, we're, to that person, we're saying, I, I promise that I will remember to forget. One commentator put it this way, and I thought it was a very succinct way of doing it. Forgiveness is not a passive forgetfulness, but an active love in refusing to bring up a sin for condemnation. So let us be a people who are willing to forgive without limit. That we would be marked by that extent of forgiveness. That we forgive 70 times 7. We just keep forgiving and forgiving. And we forgive so that we promote unity. And we forgive out of the fuel that the love of God has shown us. We forgive with a love that covers a multitude of sin. Now that's the extent of forgiveness. That's how much we're supposed to forgive. And then Jesus continues. He, he says, for, you need to forgive a limited number amount, inexhaustible forgiveness. And then he goes on and gives a reason. And when we get to the reason, we're going to look at verse, verses 23 through 35, the parable of the unforgiving uh, slave. Now Jesus is going to explain forgiveness with this parable, and he starts with this key phrase, for this reason. That is, what he just said in verse 22 about the extent of forgiveness applies to what he's, going to go, what he's going to talk about. He's going to reveal the basis of this unlimited forgiveness. He's going to teach the reason why we can forgive 70 times 7. Now, imagine Jesus just said this. Like, All right, Peter, forgive 70 times 7. 
all right, you guys are ready to head out? And you know, they, they go, and Peter would be ill-equipped. He will lack that crucial truth that we need ourselves to be able to forgive. And so Jesus, out of his infinite wisdom and love for us and love for Peter, gives us his reason. He says that it is through God's forgiveness, through God's forgiveness in our own lives, that we are able to extend that love and that forgiveness to others. And we don't do it by our own fuel. We don't do it by our own self-righteousness. We do it by God's love. You know, if we do it by ourselves, by our own power, that's like, that's like using, uh, playing with one of those wind-up toys. You guys know what I'm talking about, where you have like a little knob, and you turn it, and you let go, and it does something? Uh, Calvin, I was playing with my son Calvin, and he got one of these toys, I don't know, from like uh, McDonald's. It's like one of those Happy Meal toys. And he's like, I want to play with this. Like, yeah, let's play with it. So I start winding it. I must have been like 15 minutes winding that thing. I said, like, okay, we're, gonna, we're about to have a lot of fun. So I give it to him, I let go, the thing vibrates for 10 seconds and dies. And he's like, yay, do it again. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I do it again, and I'm like, yay, do it again. And about the fifth time, I was like, I'm just going to throw this away. Uh, <laughs> it, it gets tiring. I don't, I don't want to do it again. And you know, that's, that's how it feels like if you're trying to forgive on your own power. If you're trying to forgive without that basis of, of God's forgiveness to you. If you're trying to do it on your power, you just get sick of it. You get tired of it. You don't want to go it again. You want to give up on this forgiveness. But if you look to the unlimited forgiveness that God has shown to you on the cross, if you look to Christ, there is no limit there. It keeps giving and giving and giving to you every day. Every day you sin and every day you have forgiveness. And that forgiveness you extend to others. It is a fuel for our own forgiveness. We will never run out of it. And this is what this parable is teaching. This is what Jesus is going for. And so Jesus is going to set up this parable in verse 23. He says, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. So putting it simply, Jesus is talking about the, the kingdom of heaven. Now the kingdom of heaven, just kind of going over this uh, quickly, quickly, the kingdom of heaven is not a, an actual kingdom that Jesus has established yet. He has come, and he will establish this kingdom. And the Bible says that when he returns, he will establish his, his millennial kingdom. But right now, he, and, and there is like a, a present aspect where he is, he is representing the kingdom. He is a king, and he, he is there. And in a very real sense, we represent the kingdom as citizens of the kingdom. Right? If you are a believer, if you have trust in Jesus Christ, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and, the, and, and the, the Bible says that we're aliens and strangers here on earth. So this lesson is, is applying to believers. If you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what citizens do. And so Jesus says the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king. Uh, now there is a difference here. We've got to be careful in how we go about parables. Okay, parables are not allegories. And do you, you guys understand the difference? Allegories have a hidden meaning to it. They have a, almost like a, like a code, like the, everything's depicted by a symbol, and that symbol is supposed to depict a spiritual reality. Uh, however, a parable, on the other hand, is more of an illustration. Uh, it illustrates a truth or principle. So the characters uh, are uh, representative, or um, at least made like equivalent to real beings, uh, and so Jesus is using this parable to illustrate this truth. Okay, so we're not going to look at this parable and say, well, everything the king does, that's what God's going to do. Or everything the slave does, that's what Christians are going to do. 
Okay, parables don't work that way. They illustrate a basic principle, and that's what Jesus is getting here, getting at here. And so we have this king, and the king is coming to settle accounts with the slaves. Now, why does a king have to settle accounts with the slaves? Now, we think of a slave, we think of someone in the house, uh, uh, either serving the, the king, uh, the king calls the slave over, I don't know, gave him my food or whatever it is. You know, those household kind of slaves. But there are, there are more kinds of slaves than that. This will be a slave that's, that's almost like a governor. He serves under the king and he uh, surveys or, or uh, supervises this area, this province, and, uh, and now the king is coming to collect what his. Most likely, like a tax, think of a like tax collector or something like that. The king is coming to collect what, what, what is rightfully his, and he's coming to settle accounts. And that phrase, settle accounts, is more about commercial language. It's a co- typical for commercial and legal language. So is the king coming to collect what is his? It is, you could say, a time of reckoning. And like the slaves in this parable, there does come a time of reckoning, reckoning upon all humans. God's going to come upon every single one of us and say, do you have what you owe me? And what do we owe him? Well, we sin greatly against him. We have a huge debt. And the king will judge everyone. And he has books. And in these books are the deeds. And if you are not a believer, those deeds are recorded in those books and you will be judged according to those books. And it is a, 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 a judgment uh, for punishment. It's not for reward. But this parable is not talking about final judgment. There's an opportunity for grace here. And there's an opportunity for compassion, as we will see. And we're going to see this play out in the first scene. And when we go through the parable in verse 24, we have the first scene. We're introduced to this slave. And verse 24 says, When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment had to be made. So we're introduced to the slave, and he, he owes a lot of money. Okay, so it says 10,000 talents. If, if, you, if we look at those words in the Greek, talent is the biggest denomination of money that they had in, 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 during the Greek days. You can't get any bigger denomination than that. And the word for 10,000 is the same word that we have for a myriad. It is the largest number, or largest, yeah, I guess, word for a number in, in the Greek. So they have this large number with this large denomination, and it's just getting across the idea that this is a lot of money. Uh, and, and I don't think we could quite appreciate it, so let me give you some historical references. Uh, a year of taxes, if you were to look at how much taxes Rome collected in the region of Galilee, that would be about 300 talents in one year. So 300 talents, and this guy, this slave, owes the king 10,000 talents. He cannot pay it. This is like, and because of these words using, I think Jesus is kind of like saying, Look, this, is, this is a, a zillion dollars. This is a, an obscene amount of money. And I'm a numbers guy, so I thought, like, okay, what, what, what number would this be? So I did a little calculations. Um, so the average income for California is about 52000 So if we were to translate that and think, what is 10,000 talents in today's, in, in California, it would be $8.5 billion. Billion with a, with a B. That's a lot of money to owe a king. And so his disciples heard this and said, okay, this is an enormous amount of money. There's no way this guy could pay this debt. 
And just to be clear, Jesus states, right, in verse 25, he did not have the means to repay. It is very much out of his capacity. He cannot do it. So the king was going to sell the slave. He says, well, you can't pay me my money. I'm going to sell you. I'm going to sell the, uh, your, your family because they're his slaves as well. I'm going to sell everything you own so that at least I can get a little bit back. And that little bit will be so small in comparison to 10,000. I think this is more of a punishment. I think the, the, the king is coming saying, you have been completely negligent, negligent of what you need to do, and now I'm going to punish you. Now, let me step away from this parable for a second. There is a, a very real spiritual reality here that we need to address, and that is our own spiritual indebtedness before God. See, without Christ, we are bankrupt before God. He will come to judge, and we'll, what we will offer him? We will offer him our good deeds. We will say, here you go, Lord, this is what I have done. And the Bible says our good deeds are as filthy as rags, dirty rags. All the good deeds in the world cannot possibly make up for this huge debt that we have. It is impossible for you to pay it off. Now, how terrible is this offense? Let's make it a little personal here. I want you to think of the worst sin someone has done for you. Think of the worst sin someone has sinned against you. Your indebtedness to God does not compare to that sin. You are not holy like God is. And God is infinitely holy. And our sin is infinitely offensive. So sinners come before God and are not able to pay this. And so they are sent to hell. And even hell, there's no satisfaction there either. You could offend an infinitely God, and you, you won't be able to satisfy that debt with a few short centuries in hell. Your infinite sins require infinite judgment. And after a thousand years of hell, that sinner will be no more righteous than he was when he first came in. It is an infinite debt. So what are we to do? You can't pay this. Your good works won't work. Good works are little filthy little pennies to God. So there's nothing we can do but humble ourselves as we come before the king. And this is exactly what this slave does in the parable. Look at verse 26 with me. This, so the slave, in response to this, the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay everything. Now notice the slave's attitude. It is one of great humility. He knows that he is seriously in debt. In the original languages, if you were to read what he says, it says, falling down, the slave fell down. So you get the idea. He's just on the floor, face down, and you kind of see the terror of the slave, don't you? You see that he's, he's being approached by this king who, who is his high superior, and his king says, you owe me 10,000, 10,000 talents. I just, I can't do anything but fall to the ground and bleed. It's very interesting here. The word that we see uh, translated in the uh, NES, the, the word for prostrate, it is a word that's used throughout Matthew and throughout the New Testament as a submissive worship to God. So the slave is falling down before God, uh, before the king in humility, and there is this sense of, of worship, a sense of awe, a sense of fear that he has. And so the slave pleads to his Lord for, for patience, and he, he promises to repay, and you think, repay? Man, what a desperate thing to say. I mean, that is, I'm sure Peter is like, how, okay, he can't do that. Repay 10,000 talents? Not going to happen. 
And I, I just thought, like, okay, what would that be like? That would be like if my, if my son, let's say, set fire to our house. And he's like, okay, my bad, guys. I'll, 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 pay, I'll pay for it. All right. I, I wouldn't believe him if he was 16. I wouldn't believe him if he was three or four, whatever he is now. <laughs> He'll be 16 soon, I guess. So he doesn't have the means to pay. And so no doubt Peter recognized that. No doubt Peter says this guy is just a, a, a plea out of desperation. There's an enormity to this debt here. And I, I think we can have a similar approach to our sin. We, we make a sin, and, and we almost want to make up for it, right? We have that guilt, and we say, okay, Lord, um, just let me go, and, and I'll, I'll promise I'll do better. Uh, I'll promise I'll, I'll be good. I'll, I'll do X, Y, and Z. And these are just vain attempts to set things right before God. You can't. Your debt's infinite. What we need is God to intervene. And what we need is God to show us forgiveness. And we see that in the cross. And we see that here with the king. Verse 27, the key verse to this parable. Verse 27, And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. So does the king grant the slave's request? No. He does way more. He exceeds it. He goes beyond it. Rather than giving him time, rather than simply reducing the debt, he's, he releases him from the possibility, possibility of being sold. He's, you don't have to worry about that anymore. And then he forgives the debt. The slave owes nothing now. 10,000 10, talents gone. His account has been wiped clean. Why would the king do such a thing? Verse 27 says it. It is because... He had compassion. He took pity on this slave. There was no attachments. There was no contingencies. The king said, okay, I'll do that, but you, you got to do this for me. It was nothing like that. The king simply said, you're forgiven. It was an act of pure grace. Do you realize that forgiveness that we have in Christ? It is that immense forgiveness. Do you realize the debt that has been canceled? the ransom that has been paid, the burden that has been taking off your shoulders. It is far more than this monetary debt that this slave owed. It is far more than any other debt or offense or sin that either you can commit or has been committed against you. God has transferred your burden onto his perfect son and his perfect son died on the cross. Our sins have been placed on him and his righteousness has been placed on us. The spiritual reality of forgiveness for us, for believers, dwarfs this parable. This parable is just 10,000 talents. But what God did is not only did he forgive us, not only did he release us from this internal punishment, but you were made into a son or daughter of the king. You were adopted. He transformed you. And now you live as a citizen of this kingdom, as aliens and strangers to this world, but citizens of this kingdom, and now you have this power to forgive others that you didn't have before. I want you to keep your finger here. Uh, let's turn to Ephesians 4.32. Ephesians 4, and I want you to see something, a, a parallel passage here. Ephesians 4.32 says this, this is a, a Paul has, has, is writing to the Ephesians here, and he's telling the Ephesians you have to live according to your new nature. 
uh, there's a new conduct that must accompany this new, na- new nature. You must be imitators of God. And he writes to them, be kind to one another. This is verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgiven you. And verse 1, chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. You want to know how to, be, how to live as citizens of the kingdom? As beloved children of the king? It is to forgive as God has forgiven you in Christ. That's how, that's how it is to be in the kingdom of heaven. He forgave us all our sins. He no longer holds it against us. If we continually confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. So that's what we need to do. That's what we need to imitate our God. That's how we do it. We forgive others repeatedly. He is a reason why we can forgive. We can forgive much because we have been forgiven of much. Let's go back to our parable. Back to Matthew. So the, the, the slave has been forgiven. And how does the slave react to this? What does it do? Well, the parable changes scenes here. And we go out from the presence of the king. And now we're among the slaves. And we see the, the, the slave interact with his, with his fellow slaves. And read in verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, the language there is, is, is very purposeful. He went out, and he was seeking. He's like, all right, I'm freed of this debt. By the way, this guy owes me 100 denarii. Now, just to get the, the relationship here, 100 denarii is 100 days of, of uh, wages for labor. That's what one denarii is one day's wage of labor. And so the, it was very possible for this fellow slave to pay off the 100 denarii. It wasn't an incredible amount of debt. But look at what the, the, the slave reacts to him. He goes to his fellow saves, and in verse 28, he seizes them and begins to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. What happened to the the grace that was just shown to him? It's completely forgotten. He's after this 100 denarii. You know how this compares to 10,000 talents? This is 0.0002% of what he owed the king. And he wants it. He wants it from this fellow slave. Now look at what the slave does, verse 29. So his slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him. Sound familiar? Saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. He uses the same words as the slave used to the king. Same exact words. Have patience with me and I will repay you. The only difference is is that he doesn't use that word that we've seen for worship. The slave is not coming to him in an attitude of worship. Attitude of humility, yes, but not an attitude of worship. And the other difference is that he could actually pay this off. It's within, it's within his reach. So you would think that would kind of trigger the memory, right, of, of this slave. Like, oh, I was just forgiven. But instead, he acts harshly. Verse 30, but he was unwilling. The slave was unwilling. This is a hard issue now. He was even unwilling to consider forgiving him. And verse 30 continues, he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Now, this was kind of a common practice back then. You would, if someone owed you money and wouldn't pay you back, you would put them in prison. And the idea was that their family members would want them out of prison so they'll come up with the money. And as soon as the money comes up, they'll be released. Common practice, yet in comparison to what has been done to this slave, this common practice is seen as terribly wicked. 
Notice the other slaves. What do the other slaves do? Verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. That is, they were severely distressed and came and reported to the Lord all that had happened. They couldn't, they knew what was happening. That, that was unacceptable. And this is really the church in action, right? This goes back to what Jesus said in verse 17 of, of chapter 18. Verse 17 Jesus says, if you refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if you refuse to listen even to the church, let them be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. See, sins cannot be uh, in the church uh, just ignored. We can't have believers treating other believers harshly. There must be forgiveness because we are the forgiven ones. We are the ones who are forgiven greatly. So, what do we do? If, if someone has no forgiveness and does not re- repent, we go to the Lord and we ask the Lord to help them to forgive, help them to come to a place of repentance. And the painful reality is if they don't, if they're ultimately not going to forgive, then they were ultimately never his. They're ultimately never part of the kingdom of heaven. And this is what we see what happens with the king in verse 32. Verse 32, the Lord comes to the slave, and look how he addresses the slave in verse 32. You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Now, we start to get a little uneasy here. Like, wait, wait a minute. What, didn't, wasn't this person forgiven? Didn't, he, didn't the king say, don't worry about it, I forgave your debt, you're free to go, you're released? And then he's sent to the torturers in verse 34. And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. Well, there's something that doesn't match here. And Jesus stresses that in verse 33. He says, should you, that is, in the Greek it's very emphatic, says, is it not necessary, is it not fitting that because you were shown such a great mercy that you should show mercy to others? It is fitting, and it's only fitting, that if you have been shown powerful mercy and the forgiveness of your sin, that you ought to show mercy to others. So what about this slave? Well, some have questioned whether this parable even applies to believers. Could it be that Jesus is just addressing unbelievers here? Because what is Jesus saying? He says that if we don't forgive, we lose our forgiveness with God. And then you say, isn't that what's happening to the slave? Well, yeah, that's what happens to the slave. But remember, this is a parable. Right? We don't take this parable and say everything in this parable is spiritually true. Okay? The, the, the point of the parable is not to show you that you can lose your salvation. This is not a parable on salvation, but this is a parable on forgiveness. And, the, and by the way, Jesus never teaches that. He never teaches that you can lose your salvation based off your works. The Bible never teaches that. Right? We are, no one is saved by works. We're saved by grace alone, by the grace of God alone. And so what's, what's the point of this parable? The point of this parable is to show how uncharacteristic it is for a citizen of the kingdom, for one who has been shown such great mercy to refuse to forgive. That is just downright evil. It doesn't match. One commentator put it this way, whoever tries to separate man's forgiveness from God will no longer be able to count on God's mercy. Not only does he merely forfeit it, but shows that he never had it to begin with. 
You see, how we forgive, our forgiveness is evidence of God's forgiveness of us. Now, this passage provides a, a powerful warning, and I think Jesus meant for that. I think there was supposed to be a shock here. If you're a believer, but you refuse to forgive a brother or sister, then God will correct you. If you're truly his, God will correct you. In Hebrews 12, we're told that the father lovingly disciplines his children. He says that he scourges those whom he loves. God does not simply look over your sin. As, you're, as a child, as a kingdom of God, God will correct you. And it may be painful. But even on a more serious note, if you refuse to forgive, it may be because you refuse to believe. See, if you refuse to forgive, you don't know the, the, the work of God that God has done for you. You don't know the depth of God's forgiveness. It's only those who have been forgiven by God can forgive without limit. So have you experienced his forgiveness? Or are you still trying to pay that enormous debt with your filthy pennies of your work? You can have that forgiveness today. That debt can be erased. You can become a citizen of heaven, a citizen of the kingdom, if you would just humble yourself before God. Repent from your sins and trust in the work of Christ alone. But what if you're a believer? What if you are a believer today and forgiveness still seems out of reach? You still have difficulty forgiving. Well, I want to draw you back to the cross. I want you to meditate and remember the great forgiveness that God has shown to us. Meditate on those gospel truths that you have been redeemed that you are now righteous. There's no condemnation for you before God. You have been transformed, and God is continuing to work through you and in you with the Holy Spirit. So if you're a believer and forgiveness seems like an impossibility, meditate on the gospel, pray to God, and pray that God will show you that your sin against him pales in comparison to the sin done against you. He will help you. He will give you those wings to fly. And only then we can forgive much because we have been forgiven of much. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and how even through Peter, you have revealed to us this truth about our forgiveness. That there is a debt that we could not pay on our own. There is a a debt that we would have to spend eternity in hell and judgment for it. But out of your grace, out of your mercy, you have forgiven us much. And Father, we need your help. As your sons and daughters, as the citizens of your kingdom, we need your help to be able to give that forgiveness to others, to show that forgiveness in the church, to show that forgiveness to our spouses, our children, our coworkers. Lord, let us be conduits of your grace. May your grace just flow from us. And the forgiveness of the cross becomes such a real reality that we are left in shock and awe, just filled with thankfulness. And that that, that would transform our emotions. That would transform our hearts. Continue doing the work in us, Lord. Thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.